You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Farmer. You always write to ask How come I don't write back like to you? episode 140 of the Christian Humanist Podcast. I'm your host today. My name is Michael Farmer. I'm an assistant professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. Joining me today, as usual, uh, is Nathan Gilmore, who is a, are you an associate professor? I am indeed. Of English at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. How goes the life of an associate? It's good. We actually start classes this coming Monday, so when this episode drops, I will have taught my first round of classes. I always forget you start so early. We don't even have fall planning until the week after that. Wow. But, I mean, we get out on, like, December 21st this year, so. Yeah. It's largely because of our large population of teacher ed majors. They want to get them out in the schools early, so our school year starts, you know, very early relative to other colleges. I like to get our teacher ed majors out of the school, too. (laughs) <laughs> just kidding. I believe I said out into the schools. Just, 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 just kidding to any of our teacher ed people who listen. Uh, also joining us are the, the professor of English at uh, Central. Oh man, it's been you know these summer episodes are the worst. I can never remember anything to say. <laughs> he is a professor of English at Central Christian College in McPherson, Kansas. David Grubbs. Yep. The newly graduated Dr. David yeah. Grubbs. Hooded and everything. It was it was pretty swell. Awesome. Well, and now is... I have all my wizardly robes. This uh, this episode is going to be one in a new series wherein we do nothing but answer listener emails. We have quite a few of these. Uh, I think we're reading every one that's come in since the last time we answered listener email back in like April. Uh, I can't <laughs> promise we're going to read every word of every one of these emails because David, how many pages do we have of emails? Uh, 14. 14. So, um, you know, if we're reading one of yours and we skip a paragraph, I'm very sorry. But, you know, we don't have all day. Uh, and actually, <laughs> we're going to start with one that snuck in uh, right before we started recording. This is from Daryl, uh, one of those wonderful German last names that we, we always ha- seem to have so much trouble with on this show. I think it's pronounced Reimer. It's E-I. Uh, mm-hmm. Daryl Reimer. He says, Hola, los humanistas cristianos. So he has a German last name I can't pronounce, and he speaks in Spanish, which I can't pronounce. Yesterday <laughs> I listened to and enjoyed your Mark Hurd podcast. I began a response, but it ran away on me, so rather than fill your site with my text, which your watchdog doesn't seem to allow for anyway, I resorted to using my own blog. And then he links to it, and we will link to it in the show notes, and you can go read it. I enjoyed that post very much. I think he's um, he, he knows more about Mark Hurd than we do, for one thing, um, but his analysis of the songs I think is very good. So that'll be on the 
that'll be on the, the show notes for this. It says, also, I commend you on your decision to invo- devote entire podcast to listener feedback. Speaking as a cherry picker or cafeteria humanista, if you will, it's occasionally been something of a listener disincentive to tune into subject matter I'm interested in, only to be subjected to an initial 10 to 20 minutes devoted to one I am not. And now that I've weighed <laughs> in at length on something you've covered, it's a win-win for everybody. Thank you, Daryl. And we live to please. There you go. Is that what we live for? I, I don't know. Okay. All right. So I'm next, yeah? You're, you're next. Sweet deal. Uh, this is from Chin Belay. Dudes, thanks for reading my recent email. I'll dig into the Richard Weaver essay Nathan mentioned. And it sounds like I need to dig into some Alistair McIntyre. I must confess that I was pleasantly surprised when Michael diagnosed me as one of one using a postmodern paradigm. It brought a smile to my face, and I had a guilty pleasure in thinking of the trouble I can cause at future presbytery meetings. My pastor recently suggested that as a session we read a book together. His first choice is Evangelical Theology and Introduction by Karl Barth. So this weekend we're picking up copies and we'll start our exploration of Barth's theology together. I also forwarded them, pastor and other elder, links to Michael's seven-part primer on re- religious existentialism. Yes, as a church, we are an odd duck in OPC circles. I'll, I'll say. I, I like odd ducks. <laughs> it, have either of you read that Bart book? Mm-mm. I read it no. years and years ago. I remember it being a very straightforward introduction to what he calls evangelical theology, but is really probably more likely to be just protestant theology but you know mm-hmm. very good and you, you it's it's bart at his more conservative i would say hmm. evangelical means something different in lutheran circles it, oh it yeah just, yeah it, it just means protestant but he's not right. he's not lutheran he's he's reformed they don't have presbyterians in europe i don't think but he's uh he's from the calvinist tradition not the, not oh, the lutheran right tradition. right right I'm, I'm just saying he was writing from a, a german context and when evangel in which evangelical didn't summon up visions of billy graham right Right. <laughs> I uh, I continue to chuckle at the continued existence of that primer on religious existentialism, which somehow ended up on Wikipedia. I don't know which of our listeners linked it, but a few years ago I was teaching a class on existentialism, and my students uh, were uh, went, went to Wikipedia for more help, and one of them was like, this sounds just like what Dr. And, Farmer says in class. And he, well, and he was waiting there for you. <laughs> <laughs> we have another email from Chin Voulet later, so we'll, uh, we'll come back to him. Uh, for now, we've got another German name, although he has helpfully included a pronunciation guide. People with German last names, please tell us how to pronounce them. Or with last names in general. <laughs> this is Peter, Peter Gertzen. He says, thanks for your season-ending podcast about, uh, episode about podcasts, which I guess you could call a podcast podcast. I thought <laughs> you might like to know that I listen to several podcasts, but yours is the only one I do not play at double speed. The CHP does <laughs> Deserves careful listening rather than vacuuming. Hey, hey. I like thinking up show ideas for you since it's a way I can feel smart without really doing anything. This time, allow me to suggest Spoon River Anthology by Edgar Lee Masters and The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Oh, man. Spoon River Anthology I would have to revisit, but Hitchhiker's Guide, that would be fun. You know, I've never read either (laughs) one of those. Oh, man. Hitchhiker's Guide, I mean, it is... I mean, a funny, funny series of novels. I saw yeah. the movie, the the movie with Zoe Deschanel in it. I never did, so I, I won't comment one way or the other on it. But I mean, yeah. the the trailers look like they're taking it way too seriously. 
Yeah, and I can't comment because I haven't read the books, but I would be willing. <laughs> I would be willing to read those and and do an episode on it. For yeah, sure. I mean, or even the first one, and you know, save the others for future episodes because that's one of those things. I mean, that's a a straight up fun read. I mean, you don't have to mm-hmm. wrestle with Douglas Adams. Yeah, I'd, I'd I'd have to revisit it, but I would I would be up for that. I never saw the movie either, and I really wondered how well it would work because so many of the jokes in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy are buried in footnotes. Right, and the ones that aren't are in the narrative voice. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it's kind of like reading Candide, you know. I mean, a lot of the humor is a very serious situation followed up by a caustic one-liner. Yeah. Or Twain, right? Oh, yeah, right. yeah, yeah, that's another good, yeah, or Vonnegut for that matter. Yeah. Well, very, very uh, cool. Peter, you may you may hear an episode on one of those two things. Oh, Thank yeah, you. that sounds fun. Thanks for writing in. Nathan, you've got something? Yeah, I got one from Daniel Wright. Dear Christian Humanist, I studied, I stumbled across your podcast about a year ago and have been listening through most of the episodes since then, especially the ones that uh, didn't look very interesting on the basis that I was clearly missing out on something, which turned out to be the case. That was a very acrobatic sentence, Daniel. I enjoyed them enormously. My personal favorites have been the Richard Weaver triptych. I have already had the chance to pass off many of your insights as my own (laughs) and intend to continue to do so. Having finally caught up with you, I was wondering what I was going to listen to next, but it turns out that your last episode gave me a whole load of more materials, so thanks for that. A little background, I dithered for a while about whether to study mathematics or classics at university before going for the former and and ending up as a software engineer with a deep love for the humanities. So I want to thank you for giving me an outlet for that, and more specifically, an outlet that enables that love to work with with my Christian faith. I have a number of things I would love to have said as I went along, but it's probably better if I don't list them all. So I'll just mention one. Michael Farmer often has a go at contemporary Christian worship songs. The criticisms he makes are generally valid. On the other hand, I want to write in defense of stupid songs. There is a song we have at my church whose chorus goes like this. I cannot wait to hear Nathan Gilmore read this. I I, I, I do not have sheet music, so I'm going to have to do a uh, a spoken word reading. Are you ready, ready, ready? A ring, a ding, a ding, a ding. Are you ready, ready, ready? A ring, a ding, a ding, a ding. Are you ready, ready, ready? A ring, a ding, a ding, a ding, a ding, a ding, a ding. Obviously, this song is competing with Jingle Bell Rock for stupidest lyrics ever written, but as the teacher says, to everything there is a season, and we only ever sing this song in the middle of church mission week in which we send a bunch of students out to tell people about Jesus. The logic is that if you're not prepared to sing such a stupid song at the top of your voice, complete with hand-waving actions, then you're not prepared to do something as stupid as evangelism, CF 1 Corinthians 1. One more thing. You may have gathered from some of my spellings that I'm British. Please don't let David Grubbs attempt to put on a British accent again, because the only time he did so, it was so bad, it caused me almost physical pain. Yours truly, and keep up the good work, Daniel, my ho- my high school is older than your country, right, from Durham. That's excellent. You know, it reminds <laughs> yeah. me of, uh, I, I saw an interview with Hugh Laurie once, and he was talking about Dick Van Dyke and Mary Poppins, and he referred to the... Uh, Van Dyke's uh, British accent is an act of war. (laughs) (laughs) That's nice. When have I ever done a British accent? Oh, I'm sure you've done it at some point in the last 140 episodes. Yeah, the 120 of them. But I have have no memory of it. (laughs) I can't. I can't have been really trying, Daniel. 
he wants to redeem himself. Well, you know, just oh, for that, man. I'm going to read the next letter in the character of a retired Anglo-Indian uh, colonel or something, probably. You know. <laughs> <laughs> hey guys, I came across the works of Je- no. Okay, I can't. I can't sustain that. <laughs> All right, hey guys, I came across the works of Joseph Priestley a few years ago and was introduced through them to the idea of non-trinitarian Christianity. Have you all any recommendations for reading that for reading that addresses Socinianism, the Arian controversy, and other so-called low Christologies? Nope. Carl Reiser. <laughs> nope, I don't. Nathan. Oh, I'm trying to think. I mean, um, you know, as far as criticisms of them, um, man. And see, I actually had a, tit- a couple titles in mind the first time I read this, but because I was prepping other emails, I didn't reread this. Mm-hmm. Uh, so let me say, Kyle, that if I think of any, I will try to email you personally with my recommendations. Okay. All I know about Joseph Priestley is that he invented air. <laughs> or at least that's what a book I read said. Mm-hmm. I gotcha. Yeah. Uh, read the Arian controversy. I don't know that a whole lot. By act by Arius or those defending his causes survived. Um, if you look at the uh, oh the big old collection of church fathers and you and you get out the 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 Athanasius volume, there's a number of works against Arianism by Athanasius that include substantial quotes or summaries of of Arian um, positions. Right. Uh, now, granted, it's it's by Athanasius, so he's you know <laughs> he's going to knock it down as soon as he sets it up. But mm-hmm. uh, that, as far as I know, is is all we know of that. Uh, Socinianism, it might be a little difficult to track it down, but that's but Socinian works uh, proliferated in the uh, in seventeenth and on into the eighteenth centuries, mm-hmm. and most of the. Uh, Many of the, the second and third generation reformers and a number of Puritans wrote uh, critiques of Socinianism, mm-hmm. um, notably John Owen. Um, I don't wish reading John Owen on anyone. It's it's <laughs> it's like yeah, it's it's like hacking your way through a jungle. But you know, he has good stuff to say when writing it. Right. Um, and then if you want to take on a very modern low Christology, I mean, uh, a very brief text would be uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson's Address to the Harvard Divinity School. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, you know, one of them that I think of as, you know, sort of setting up uh, a very distinctive uh, picture of Christ that is definitely a low Christology. This is this is what happens when you're a Renaissance person, Nathan. Uh, you refer to a, uh, a a lecture given in 1830 as a very modern text. Oh, it is. <laughs> <laughs> in, this, in the grand scheme of Arianism, I suppose yeah. it is. Yeah, I, I will say I will say Kyle, and you know, I, I and 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 I I don't intend to be mean, but um, I don't believe there's such a thing as non-Trinitarian Christianity. Um, so. You know, there's that, but works are out there. Um, we've we pointed you in some directions, but um, yeah, 
Right. Well, I mean, as a, as a as a descriptive historical category, mm-hmm. I think it's a meaningful predicate. But yeah, I mean, I I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, next we have the uh, the longest email I think I've ever gotten in my entire life. <laughs> I, I, this email, and I, I was thinking about it. I think the e- this email is actually longer than the notes I got on my dissertation. <laughs> That's phenomenal. It's from our uh, it's from our old friend Coyle Neal, um, who who uh, I, obviously this is something we're going to summarize a lot of. it. in fact, we're breaking it into three parts. Uh, uh, I you know I appreciate getting it, and he has lots of interesting things to say, but we have to make fun of him a little bit, right? Yes. He says, hey, gents, because of various life events, new job, new town, new house, new baby, etc., I'm still far, far behind. And so replying to things you recorded in the distant past. So apologies for being the cold, dead hand of the past, reaching out to drag you all down. <laughs> He's going to start with the postmodernism episode. And he says, um, at one point, someone, Michael, I think, pointed out that evangelical Christians tend to be openly hostile to the postmoderns like Derrida and Foucault while giving something of a past to Bertrand Russell. He has two comments on this. First, he cannot pass up an opportunity to take a shot at Bertrand Russell. He largely gets a pass by most Christians these days because despite writing books much more openly hostile to Christianity than most postmoderns, his polemics are so laughably poor that they're frankly not worth the energy. I'm told that Russell was one of the greatest mathematicians who ever lived, and that may well be the case, but I know from my massive disappointment on reading it that his arguments in why I am not a Christian basically come down to Christians have done awful things like the Crusades. Therefore, the religion must be garbage. And really, all religion does is make you feel better about dying and scared about doing bad things, which is another reason it's untrue. On the other hand, Derrida, Foucault, and other thoughtful postmoderns present arguments that, though not always specifically targeted at religion, can be absolutely devastating in their clarity, subtlety, and thoroughness, especially to the unprepared Christian thinker. Mm-hmm. By the way, if you ever re- – this is me again, Michael, not, not Coyle. If you ever really want to uh, have a laugh, you should read uh, – I think it's A.C. Grayling wrote a little book on uh, on Russell. It's, it's one of those very short introductions. And he, he makes the, the saddest case ever that while Bertrand Russell was an atheist, he was religious in the sense of being open to experience or whatever. <laughs> I think I wrote what uh, what tedious bourgeois twaddle in the in the margins. Uh, he says, also, as for Christians appealing to and being able to some extent to agree with philosophical opponents, I would suggest that postmodernism does have something to offer. And I'm agreeing with at least one of you here, though I don't remember which one, probably Nathan. Yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll just go ahead and steal from Francis Schaeffer. argues in one of his books, I don't remember which book exactly, but it was one of the trilogy, that Foucault and his ilk performed a very important service of destroying all the false foundations constructed and promises made by Western thought up through the 20th century. This, Schaefer argues, open the, opens the door for traditional Christianity to set up in the rubble by reconciling history with transcendence in a way that doesn't rely on enlightenment, rationalism, romantic sentimentalism, or any of the other movements that have swept through the West, these movements all having been deconstructed by the postmoderns. In at least one instance, I've seen this to be true, though I would not assume it's a normal state of affairs. A friend of mine was converted to Christianity after reading Derrida. Specifically, he read Derrida and the book of Colossians at the same time and realized he had to choose between the two. Either the biblical view of sin, salvation, man, God, and Christ was correct, or the postmodern hermeneutic was. Postmodernism forced him to admit that Christianity is of necessity an all-or-nothing faith. One cannot pick and choose from it to match one's personal desires. 
nor can one reject Christianity in favor of some other branch of Western thought. Those have all been torn apart by the postmoderns. So that is the use coil sees for postmodernism. Is that something you said as well, Nathan? How very Lutheran. Uh, well, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I mean, honestly, I, I think that, you know, where Coyle and I would disagree wouldn't be whether or not his case is good. I think it is. But how far to extend that project, right? Uh, so, I mean, you know, there are probably certain territories where just speculating here, Coyle, you would say that uh, deconstruction is tearing up things that are in themselves already pretty good and don't deserve to be uh, torn up, whereas I would say, you know, rip it up and let's build something new. Uh, so I think it, it, that's definitely, you know, one of those disputes that has to do with territorial boundaries rather than the overarching project, if that makes any sense. Well, Coyle goes on uh, to talk about the great American novel episode, and here's what he says about that. Great episode! It sounds like you guys in the English world struggle with similar issues to those we face in politics. This is something that I've had long, long conversations with friends in the discipline about and probably put more thought into than strictly necessary, so I will not be offended if you skip down to the next part. We're not skipping, Coyle. Or even uh, the compliments at the end of the email, which we probably will read, all right? Uh, <laughs> Coyle goes on to talk about a course that he teaches called American Political Theory and about the problem that arises because most of the political theory that informs American politics is, in fact, uh, variously French, Scots, so on and so forth. Uh, and here is something that uh, he wrote that, you know, that sort of explains the big question of what is American political theory. And I'm quoting here from Coyle. What does American political thought mean? Uh, the best book on American politics ever written is De, De Tocqueville's Democracy in America, which is written from a decidedly non-American perspective. Likewise, there were a number of excellent political philosophers writing in America in the 20th century, but they were almost all immigrants who spent their formative years being shaped on the continent, mainly in Nazi Germany. Do Leo Strauss, Eric Vogelin, Hannah Arendt, or Herbert Marcuse really count as American thinkers in any way that is reflective of our political system? For that matter, does de Tocqueville, or are they German and French analyses of Ger American politics? All right. And he goes on, I mean, to ask uh, as follow-up questions, what does American political thought means? Uh, mean, pardon me, and he talks about how we have, you know, a lot of sort of nuts and bolts meditations on policy, like the Federalist Papers, but not a whole lot of political philosophy, uh, the way you think of, you know, with a Machiavelli or a John Locke. Uh, what does American political thought mean? Uh, and he says that, you know, specifically... Uh, when he teaches the course on American political thought, he covers the Great Awakening, the Great Awakening, okay, the Transcendentalists, all right, and the New Left, with some mini sections on other things. So let me get to the the upshot of what he gets to with this uh, American political thought. The point is that our two disciplines are to some extent united in this particular misery. We're asked to teach something that sort of doesn't exist, which is sometimes <laughs> a good deal of fun and sometimes a huge headache but at least always interesting to me, if not always to the students. And that's interesting. I, you know, when I think of uh, American novel, I think of, and Michael, I mean, I'm, I'm obviously out of my territory here, so feel free to smack me if need be. 
I think of something that is very self-consciously American, uh, you know, something that rises there in the early 19th century as an attempt to put up some sort of body of cultural artifacts that can run with the Shakespeare's and the Milton's of English literature. Right. I mean, so I, so I don't see political theory as being a national enterprise the way I see national literature as being a national enterprise. I mean, that, 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 does that sound about right to you, Michael? I, I mean, Coyle is the expert here, and I would defer to him. I mean, he, he, is, he is the one who has studied political science, and I, I have never uh-huh. taken a class or really read anything. But wouldn't, wouldn't the, the writings of the, the – I hate this phrase – but founding, founding fathers be a distinctively American political thought? I mean, maybe not because they're borrowing so much from Locke and – and uh, Hobbes and Rousseau, but aren't they self-consciously Montesquieu? Aren't they oh, aren't they self-consciously creating this new entity? That the I mean, you, you hear over and over again, America is the only country founded on an idea, which I don't think is true. But it, it is true yeah. that America was founded on an idea, <laughs> right? And and mm-hmm. I mean that does kind of end American political thought sometime before the beginning of the 19th century. Um, so I don't want to I don't want to claim that it's some far-reaching tradition in that sense, but mm-hmm. I, I would think the phenomenon you're talking about, about uh, American literature kind of self-consciously fashioning itself to compete with Europe, the mm-hmm. reason they're able to do that, or the reason, not not the reason they're able to, the reason they feel it necessary to do that is because we've already done it on a governmental level. We've already, we've already mm-hmm. created okay. this, this new political system. And, well, how come our, uh, how come our language and letters is is hanging back so far in fact i think um i think emerson says something similar to that in is it the american scholar it's one of it's one of those early lectures for some reason Mm -hmm. emerson keeps coming up today Mm -hmm. so i I mean i don't know like i said i would defer to coil here but i think i think there may be more of an american political tradition than it immediately seems Mm. Hmm. all right i i guess my Again, I'm still uneasy about that because it seems to me, and again, deferring to Coyle, of course, it seems to me that political science or political philosophy as a discipline seems to be a cosmopolitan discipline. It is trying to describe politics, and I mean there's a lot less stake in, you know, let's establish a national political theory. Mm-hmm. And yeah. again, I mean part of it is that I don't live in that world, but I mean – you know, I think uh, I think of great disputes, you know, about literature being, you know, what is the great American novelist, right? Whereas, you know, in political thought, you know, it's which body of theory is more adequate to human communal existence. If you're doing political theory right, you don't want to come up with American political theory. You want to come up with something that maybe doesn't work in every society in the world, but works in most of them. Is that what you're saying? Mm-hmm. I think that's what I'm trying to say, yeah. Yeah. What do you think, David? Uh, David, <laughs> the, the, the least political person I've ever met. <laughs> well, I, I, I do think um, he, he makes the comment about the Federalist Papers, the Anti-Federalist Papers, and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but that in those – and I remember – we, we, and we did a, we did a series – um, on the Federalist Papers. Oh yeah, that that they were much more interested in saying, okay, what ought we to 
do and for what reasons less than uh, less than they were trying to um build up a notion of 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 what the political is and 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 how it ought to be from the ground up i th- i think they had they had sources for their political thought and didn't feel the need to reinvent that um it, it you know i i guess my read would be that that they that they thought that perfectly adequate thinking on political philosophy had already been done it just hadn't been implemented properly and that was what they were setting about to do was to implement implement what they thought was perfectly ser- ser- serviceable existing political thought that mm. uh that because of the the weight of time and tradition and monarchy and all of those other things in 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 Europe um, these ideas had not been able to to flourish, and so and so America is the place where these these good ideas can can grow up. So which, which, which I think goes along with something else Coyle says in the email, which is that Americans aren't great philosophers. Mm-hmm. And if I mean the the big American philosophical movement is pragmatism and what you're what you're describing is is a, is a species of pragmatism but actually just because we're not great philosophers just it would make me think we would be better at coming up with political thought which is inherently mm-hmm. pragmatic i would think but again not a political scientist yeah <laughs> so i don't i don't want to i don't want to uh speechify about somebody else's discipline about which i know almost nothing yeah, I too defer to Coil Neal. <laughs> well, David, why don't you read the rest of his email to us, or at least parts sure. of it? Right at home. Uh, this is a comment on the C.S. Lewis episode or A Defense of Schaefer. Uh, another episode ragging on Schaefer. I think that's what you called it in the show notes. <laughs> and not necessarily unfairly, given that you were talking mostly about how should we then live. Unfortunately, Schaefer's later works, uh, How Should We Then Live in a Christian Manifesto, basically everything written after he returned to the U.S. and got involved in politics, to often obscure his much better earlier works, which I'm not familiar with, to be fair. Um, Specifically, the trilogy, especially The God Who Is There and True Spirituality Are Worthwhile, I'd argue that Schaefer brings a number of good things to the Christian table in these books, including his analyses or his analysis of the tendencies of Western thought and the unity of its development. While I don't agree with every conclusion he draws about individual thinkers, I think he gets both Kant and Kierkegaard wrong, for example. His analysis of the overall thrust of philosophy is a useful one for Christians who want to engage in the life of the mind. It helps that at this point in his writing, Schaefer is much more willing to acknowledge the strengths of Western philosophy, even as he ultimately rejects it. Oh, what's more, in these early writings, Schaefer sets an example of how one might engage these philosophical texts from a Christian perspective. Again, I think there are things he certainly gets wrong, but his method of reading through the filter of historical Christianity and insisting on a focused discussion of the practical personal results of 20th century philosophy is a good one for Christians to use. One of the reasons why How Should We Then Live fails is that it shifts from the personal to the social and political levels, and so mistakes that were smallish in the early writings got amplified through the scale of space and time, as Schaefer would say. Anyway, the point is, if you eventually do an episode on Schaefer, you'll do him a disservice if you base it on his weakest writings, not on his strongest 
Again, apologies for the long email. It is out of affection, I promise. As always, keep up the good work. Your podcast continues to be a delight to listen to and makes my walk to work and my time trying to quiet the baby go that much faster. Hope all is well. Colonial. P.S. I am sad that Danny Anderson is gone, but happy that David Grubbs is back, which is the maximum number of emotions I can handle simultaneously. I'm actually a little surprised Coyle can handle two at once. (laughs) (laughs) A very focused guy. So, thoughts? Obviously, our criticisms of Schaefer are unfair because we've only read the one, I've only read the one book. Have you guys read anything other than How Should We Then Live? No, I have not. Mostly, mostly, I think our our picking on him is out of fun. Um, but uh, you're right. If we ever did a Schaefer episode, we would need to read some of those earlier works. And it's nice to hear that at some point in his life, he was not quite as strident as he is in How Should We Then Live. Uh, yeah, I, I wonder if it's some in some ways. How should we then live? Is 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 almost a more weaponized version <laughs> of some of of some thought of some ideas that came before and and when expressed then were expressed more more circumspectly. Hmm. But, in in yeah. the meantime, I'm going to continue to put that uh, horror movie sting in whenever we say his name. <laughs> but I hope uh, I hope uh, from beyond the grave he understands it's no uh, no serious offense. No, it's a joke. All right, I've got two emails here um, that are similar um, in what they say, so I'm going to read both of them and then I'll let you guys respond to them. These are from uh, Shereen Duncombe and Chen Boulay. Dear Christian Humanist. Uh, I began listening to your podcast a few months ago and thought I'd take a moment to say hello. Thank you for your informative and entertaining show. I'm a recently graduated English major, woohoo, and I'm going on to grad school this fall. As a graduate from a prominent evangelical university, I appreciate the broad intellectual content of your show. Too many of my undergraduate classmates touted the standard evangelical Christianese without fully examining the implications or weaknesses of those ideas. However, as much as I enjoy your show, I'm wondering why you reference the Bible so infrequently. For example, just today I listened to episode 105 on the freedom of a Christian. You discussed the relationship between faith and works at length, but never referenced James 2, 14 through 26. Philosophers, theologians, etc. are great, but it seems to me that including the word of God would be a no-brainer for the Christian humanist. Sincerely, Shireen Duncombe. I can't believe we didn't reference that passage in that episode. Yeah, that was a definite oversight. I'll, I'll, I'll own up to that one. Um, okay, and I, I'm going to go ahead and read Chin Boulay, and then we'll uh, come back and address the issue. He says, okay. this October will mark five years of CHP broadcast. What an awesome milestone. He's going to congratulate us at the time. Given the milestone, the expanding empire, and the larger listening audience that you have after five years of podcasting and blogging, and given my own curiosities, I'd love to hear you guys spend an episode fleshing out the Christian of the Christian Humanist Podcast. In my own mind, I'm less interested in the doctrinal or confessional boundaries that make it a Christian podcast. After 138 episodes, we have a sense of Gilmore's (laughs) semi-Pelagian, post-liberal Anabaptist Arminianism, farmer's quirky existentialist mainline feminist in uh, with a – question mark reformed in some sense presbyterianism (laughs) orthodox biblical and reformed presbyterianism look at that grubs is the only one who doesn't get the snide remark please Mm -hmm. please take these descriptions as affectionate and jesting ones coming from an accidental opc guy who in reality is probably more pca anglican roman catholic than any one straight by itself but i digress also since i just defended our making fun of schaefer i guess i have to take it when it's dished out (laughs) given your project i think it would be more interesting to spend time on how the christian of the christian humanist podcast governs and guides 
encourage your interactions with the thoughts and ideas of the artists, authors, philosophers, and theologians you interact with. In particular, I'd love to hear the three of you interact with these scriptures and how they apply to your CHP project. I'm not going to read them all because um, they, they are long, but it's it's um, 2 Corinthians 10.5, which is destroying arguments, uh, every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Proverbs 26.4-5, which is uh, Nathan Gilmore's favorite, vo- uh, favorite set of verses, <laughs> answer not a fool according to his folly and answer a fool according to his folly uh colossians 2 2 through 4 um uh, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is in Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. And 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 25, which is the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. The, the wisdom of God is, or the foolishness of God is higher than the wisdom of men and so forth. You interact, mm-hmm. he says, with a lot of ideas and engage a lot of questions that arise from people who are not Christian, which I thoroughly enjoy. Yet whether ancient pagans or postmodern deconstructions they have a starting point that is not Christ, so they are starting from a position of wisdom that Christ has made fo- or that God has made foolish in Christ. Thanks for your consideration of this request, and enjoy what is left of your summer break. Chindale. So, both of these emails, as far as I can tell, are are asking us to be more explicitly biblical. Mm-hmm. Would you guys like to address those? Yeah, I mean, you know, first of all, you know, I hope that you have enjoyed our episodes on biblical characters. Because uh, <laughs> I'd like to think those are at least somewhat biblical. I, I will say this: I mean, you know, the the freedom of the Christian episode was definitely an oversight on our part, and I'm not going to try to duck out of that at all. Um, I will say that, you know, Shireen, if you would be willing to write a follow up email with some notion of what it might sound like for the conversation to be more biblical, because my own notion of what you've got in mind is a little bit fuzzy. I mean, I, I have a hunch you're not saying that there need to be a certain number of Jesuses per minute. Uh, but beyond <laughs> that, I'm not sure exactly what sort of thing you're looking for. Now, uh, to Chen Boulay, I'll say, first of all, I'm not a semi-Pelagian. He's a full uh, Pelagian. No, I am not. <laughs> no, I semi about, is here. I talk about grace. Come on. <laughs> um, <laughs> but... <laughs> Uh, I will say that, I mean, you know, I think that... You're a hypermontanist, though. I'm, I'm not a hypermontanist. I... <laughs> oh, heavens. Anyway, uh, I will say that, you know, one of the things that marks a departure between the way that you frame things and the way that I would frame things, uh, Chen Boulay, is that I think of philosophy, whether that be ancient philosophy, whether it be postmodern philosophy, whether it be enlightenment philosophy, uh, as laying bare the structure of thought, all right? Uh, So, I mean, as far as that goes, it's going to have some kind of content, but it also has a certain movement to it, and I think that paired up with careful reading of scriptural texts, I tend not to treat philosophical texts as standing on one side of a battlefield with the Bible standing on the other, but rather as being a friend with whom I am reading the Bible together. Uh, And sometimes, ultimately, I have to say, my friend doesn't read the Bible as well as my friend should, and therefore I'm going to have to depart. Sometimes I say, wow, you've helped me to notice things that I wouldn't have noticed otherwise. Uh, So, I mean, it's, it's a different narrative, I guess, uh, in which I would situate philosophy and Bible. 
Um, David, I mean, how would you respond to these things since you're apparently the only Bible lover of the trio? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I am going to take the descriptions as affectionate and jesting. Um, I'm sure you you are. Yours, yours didn't insult you at all. (laughs) Well, I know, I know, but, but I think he's, I think he's also sort of being ironic when he says Orthodox biblical, because, because of course he would say that. Um, I tend, I, I, I tend to think of looking at uh, looking at different philosophies, different different ways of thought, um, from a perspective that more that is more like that of Justin Martyr than that of Tertullian. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I, you know, yes, the human mind um, is is fallen, our innate bent towards um, towards pride and self-aggrandizement and selfishness will will ultimately bend all of our thinking into ways that are ultimately self-serving. Um, only only God uh, through his gospel can curve us out of ourselves. Um, but that doesn't mean that there isn't um, an image of God that is still um, in in the human soul such that the, such that it, it the ideas ideas philosophies will still have something something in them that is good that i can embrace or that even in its wrongness might highlight something that i might not otherwise have seen that's good um, that's good so so in that i don't think i'm saying some i don't i don't think i'm saying anything that much different from you nathan um tell our listeners <laughs> now now we might we might disagree about how particular philosophers are helpful yeah or not but i i don't think i think about it in in that much of a different way i'm i'm not going to say okay you know plato greek pagan ergo has nothing good to say all right i'm 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 not going to say that and and you know i think plato has lots of helpful things to say and I'm happy that when I say that, I have an awful lot of church fathers saying that along with me. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I, I think the, the, the way I tend to think about it is, is one that I see modeled for me in church history, which is, which is the model of charitable skepticism. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be skeptical, but I'm going to still read you with, I'm going to still read, read, with charity looking for looking for the good because whatever good is there is something that's that's growing up out of the image of god um, right, right and therefore a thing i can prize right and i mean to borrow an image from uh Gautamer, who michael and i blogged through last summer uh you know i think that reading the bible alongside other texts whether those be epics or whether those be dialogues whether those be mm. treatises whether those be tragedies is that there is a a merging of horizons that goes on there so that you actually see things in the Bible that you would not have seen otherwise had you not read it alongside that other text. Right. So, you know, in my experience, reading those other things, you know, doesn't put more soldiers in an opposing army so much as it reflects the light from the scripture at different angles so that I can see more colors. Mm-hmm. Michael, I'm talking too much. What do you got to say, man? 
you, uh, you, uh, I'm actually going to quote you, so I don't know if that, that counts as you talking <laughs> or not. But uh, you, you, uh, you used to say that uh, the person who only reads the Bible doesn't read it right. There's, Did I say that? I think that I think you said that. Man, that's good. That is good. I, I'm, I'm kind of glad. I, I'm kind of glad I said that. Because, because, as it turns out, there's no interpretation that's innocent, right? To go back to my uh, hobby horse from last episode, Britney Spears. <laughs> She's not that innocent. <laughs> uh, uh, now I'm now I'm distracted. It's, it's very dated. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm just happy when Gilmore gets out in 1993. <laughs> I remember when that song came out, though, I was in high school. Yeah, I wasn't. <laughs> anyway, there's there's no there's no innocent reading. It's it's there, there's no way of approaching the Bible that is itself biblical, right? Because that wouldn't that wouldn't make sense to get that biblical reading. You have to come at it from some other perspective, and that's where I, that's right. where I think these opposing quote unquote opposing philosophies are can be helpful. Right. I mean, I'm, I'm basically saying what you guys just said. Right. Yeah. It's always somebody reading the Bible, in other words. Right. Right. Like everybody comes to Revelation from the outside. Mm-hmm. And, Otherwise, it wouldn't be Revelation. And when, if we get to heaven, you know, God's going to take you aside to the uh, to to the board to, to the boardroom and and tell you the three thousand ways you were wrong about everything. <laughs> that but, sounds tedious. But that's gonna that's gonna happen to Tertullian just like it happens to Justin Martyr, you know? Yeah. It's gonna it's gonna happen to all of us because we're all we're all kind of packing in these assumptions. Mm-hmm. Can I say one thing? No. Go. Okay. This is in defense <laughs> of us in our uh, Freedom of the Christian episode. Um yes, we didn't talk about James, but to be fair to us. In that episode, we were mostly trying to get at what exactly Martin Luther was trying to say. Yeah, in that text, so we we weren't we while we did some theologizing outside of Luther, most of the episode was spent in trying to figure out what on earth Luther was saying. Luther, a well-known hater of the Book of James. Yes, and so the Book <laughs> of James is not going to come into a conversation of. <laughs> but as because someone, as someone tech- who was criticizing him in that, uh, criticizing Luther in that episode, Shereen yeah. is right. I should have, I should have brought in James, even if, even if the defenders of Luther didn't. Mm-hmm. Right. So again, that that was a uh, unconscionable oversight on our part. Right. And by the way, Matthew Block, Captain Thin. I never did write that blog post in response to you that I promised. I apologize. <laughs> and then why don't you uh, move on to the next email? All right, so Graham Scott uh, wrote us a an email about uh, a thinker whose first name is uh, Who, H-U-E, middle name May, M-A-E, last name Nist, N-Y-S-T. Very clever, Graham. Uh, uh. Graham says, please pardon the irrelevant subject title, as I have difficulty knowing what to include as a subject title. Just couldn't leave it blank, though. First of all, thank you for taking the time to create these podcasts. I still have a lot of material to delve into, but I very much enjoyed what I heard of episode 120. The comments about God's Not Dead were hilarious. Uh, Not only was the podcast funny, though, as it also challenged me and got me thinking about some things that I had not considered before. I'm just going to pause and say uh, Michael Farmer was in rare form on that episode. I was just feeling bad because I still haven't seen that movie, even though you announced (laughs) at the end of the episode that we were all going to see it. Well, here's the thing. I can't find it uh, streaming affordably anywhere. You have to pay 15 bucks to stream it off of Amazon at the time of this recording. That's going to happen. 
No, I'm not spending <laughs> 15 bucks on it. I'm sorry. Uh, now, Graham goes on to say, I'm probably going on, out on a limb here, uh, but I was wondering what would the cu- Christian humanists consider as being the best philosophical works? I have a fairly new interest in philosophy around a year and would like to expand my book collection. So uh, let's go two titles each, understanding that we can't possibly narrow it down that much and be fair. Let's be unfair. Michael, what do you got? You would start with me, wouldn't you? Absolutely. Uh, I, I'm about to interview Merrill Westfall about his new book about Kierkegaard, so I'm going to go ahead and say Fear and Trembling, especially if you haven't read it mm-hmm. before and you're new to philosophy. It's, it is it is very readable. It is very short, but at the same time, uh, you'll read it five times and still not understand all of it. Uh, another one. Oh, my gosh. I, I, I am tempted to say one of the beings, either being in time or being in nothingness, but those are so long. It, it, it all depends on what you and mean. And difficult. It all depends on what you mean by best, doesn't it? Uh-huh. Uh, let's, let's say, uh, let's say the Republic in that case, um, the, the Republic is, is a, is a text that it's what a couple hundred pages long, but it somehow manages to touch on almost every area of philosophy that existed at the time and a couple that didn't. So, uh, those, those are my two, but again, uh, best is, is such a, such a vague category. Those, those are two I would recommend anyway. All right, David, what do you got? I, I have a feeling that I'm just going to step on your toes, so you go, and then whatever you've left unsaid, I shall say. Well, no, 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 I'll take the leftovers, man, go. You have you have more things to say about Plato than I do, and better things, so you say that. <laughs> all right, all right, well, um, as far as a, a book of contemporary philosophy, I mean, one that we allude to over and over, and in fact, Chen Boulay's already mentioned it, After Virtue by Alistair McIntyre yeah. uh, is a really nice introduction to some of the problems with modern moral philosophy and also, I think, a pretty constructive sort of neo-Aristotelian uh, moral philosophy in its own right. It so also I'd... touches on a whole bunch of stuff outside of ethics proper. It's, 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 oh, absolutely, yeah. yeah it's, it's very deep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and without being overly long, I mean, it, it's not a short book, but it's also not, you know, a gigantic, uh, you know, phenomenology of spirit length book, <laughs> right? Uh, <Thank> the, <laughs> the other one that I would recommend uh, really uh, as a sort of partner to uh, After Virtue is Friedrich Nietzsche's The Genealogy of Morals. Uh, if you want a really tightly argued introduction to what's eventually going to become postmodern philosophy, uh, you could do worse than genealogy of morals. If only there uh, were a series of lectures available somewhere that went <laughs> through those two books and explained how they work. I, and yes, huh. yes, as, as Michael is mocking me for, I actually did teach those two books in tandem uh, in the summer of 2013 in a, uh, a sort of introductory to philosophical ethics course at Emmanuel College, so... I think that's probably why those two books came to me. So now, David, why don't you tell us about a couple books? Um. Well, all right. Let's keep in mind I'm a medievalist, so I don't wander into the last thousand years that much. <laughs> um. Uh. So. Oh, just get you a good collection of Plato's dialogues. Um, mm-hmm. Michael's already hat tipped the Republic, but, uh, you know, you can, you can get good stuff out of just about any of them. Um, Phaedrus is good and pretty influential too. Um, you'll, you'll find 
Phaedrus's sticky fingerprints on a good bit of, um, actually, a, a good bit of medieval theology, I think. Plus, there's sex um, in it, so it's fun to read. Woohoo! Um, and Boethius's Consolation of Philosophy. Oh yeah. You know, um, you know, again, very different from the stuff that you're going to read in, you know, well, Dale's uh, recommendations, but. Um, this is uh this this book was part of the philosophical canon for centuries thereafter it was one of the big ones that that shaped the middle ages um and there and the early modern period to be fair um mm-hmm. there seemed to be a kind of tradition uh amongst uh, especially english monarchs of of reading it and and even translating it um, yeah. king alfred did a translation elizabeth yeah <laughs> Yep, Elizabeth I did a translation. Um, even Geoffrey Chaucer did a translation. So mm-hmm. th- there's something about uh, Consolation of Philosophy that's been important to English thought. Yeah, So, and Book 5 of the Consolation is, for my money, the most lucid explication of the contradictions inherent in free will and divine knowledge. Yep. I've got to read that. So, my, my wife read know. it for her dissertation, but I've never read it. Yep. Since and and you know I'm just my apologies to Graham, but I mainly think of 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 boning up on philosophy as as a way of sort of equipping myself with an environment suit so that I can get around in in a literary work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah, I, I can mainly recommend philosophical works that have been part of my own medieval environment suit. The the thing to do if you're new to philosophy and want to get a, a kind of a sense of what the quote unquote great works are is to buy a good anthology that covers a long period of time or a shorter period of time if you're interested in one particular era and just kind of thumb through it. Don't read every mm-hmm. word, but but read mm-hmm. read a few pages of everything and see what grabs your fancy. The one I use when I teach intro to philosophy is Forrest Baird's From Plato to Derrida, Philosophic Classics. Uh, I mm-hmm. picked it because, number one, he is a professor at a PCUSA school, Whitworth University, and number two, uh, the great Walter Kaufman, the grand explicator of existentialism uh, <laughs> edited it before him. But uh, I, I think that's a really good anthology that I think everything we've just talked about except Alistair McIntyre is in. So um, it may be that, that, that may be the best route for you if you're, if you're new to this and want to get a sense of the contours of the tradition. Mm-hmm. Of course it stops with Derrida. So you're not getting any contemporary stuff, but. You can read Martha Nussbaum on your own. And Slavo Zizek. <laughs> yeah. I just, like, I just like saying his name. Well, you, to, <laughs> to read, when you read him, my understanding is you read other things other people have written too. Yeah, apparently. <laughs> That's not fair. I've never read Zizek. I don't have any particular animus toward him. All right. Well, can, can we shift? We can. Yeah. We'll and, do that. Um, yes. Here is an email by Jonas Erickson. Hello, I finally listened to your internet audio recommendations episode. You asked for podcast recommendations. Well, I have a lot of them. Does he ever? Yeah. Wow. Um, are are we going to reproduce this in the show notes, maybe? Yeah. Yeah, That's that's what I was going to suggest, that we turn it into a blog post of some sort, because, man, oh, man, is this a list. I mean, we could read through them, but it would take 
several minutes and we wouldn't comment on them. Yeah, right. You guys are looking at it right now. Is there anyone on there you particularly want to recommend alongside him? I mean, a number of them look promising, but these are new to me. <laughs> Arts these and Ideas on the BBC me. is really excellent. Uh, There's I, a lot of BBC. I listen to Soundcheck on WNYC. That's All songs considered, both of those are good, if you don't mind mm -hmm. the kind of bourgeois NPR uh, taste in music. I, I think I've made fun of that before, although I have fairly bourgeois taste myself. I right. can't do the Slate Culture In Our Time test. from BBC. Yeah, In Our Time is good. Uh, Bookworm is good, although I never know the authors he's interviewing. And and, <laughs> and he sounds like Peter Lorre. <laughs> but if you've ever watched Parks and Rec and seen Derry Murbles, who's the public radio host on that network, he is a he is a parody of the guy from Bookworm. Wait, anyway, I, we'll post that. We'll post that list in the show notes. Wait, sounds like a wait, winner. Peter Laurie. Yeah. Yes. Oh. Ah. <laughs> yes. I need to interview some books. It, it really <laughs> is like that. But once okay. you once you get past the fact that he sounds like Peter Laurie, he is like the best interviewer of authors you'll ever hear. Like the questions he asks are somehow exactly the questions that need to be asked. So, I mean, that that is a good podcast. Cool. Anyway, we'll we'll post this list. Thanks for sending it, Jonas. Mhm. Mm I, I I don't know how you have time to listen to our show. And and when I look at your <laughs> list and tell you you're listening to too many podcasts, you know it's serious cuz I <laughs> I subscribe to like 60. Oh, shoot. Okay. Right. This one's from Joel Joslin. Dear Christian Humanist, as I've been listening to some of the old episodes, I just want to weigh in on the Jaws debate, the episode that will not leave me alone, and say that the second half holds up very well. Even with a few dated Thank visuals, the boat ride is still tense and well-paced with great character interactions, including an interesting modern-day version of Captain Ahab with Quint. It's one of Spielberg's very best movies. You know, we just watched it a few weeks ago, and you are absolutely right. What a, the, 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 the special effects are not great, but, man, that, that movie is so tense. Just unbelievably mm -hmm. tense. And, and as he says, very good character moments. Uh, also, I have to say, I never heard anybody besides Dr. Sigmund Farmer say that the shark <laughs> resembles both female and male genitals. Yes, there we go. That's going to be on my tombstone. <laughs> Sharks right, are right, right next to Ezekiel 2517. I don't know what that means. Oh, it's from the uh, a recent movie. No spoilers. Now that I've picked on Michael enough, I want to say I've finished reading all of Updike's Rabbit Angstrom books and really enjoyed them. One thing I noticed is it seems like Rabbit might have reformed somewhat at the beginning of each novel after the first, and then Updike proves that wrong every time over the next few hundred pages. Yes, it's very frustrating. Yeah, every time you think, oh, well, he's he's too old to want to have sex with every woman he sees. Not, not, not anymore, as it turns out. The weird sex gets to be a bit much at times, but the whole is so good I can put up with that. I'm glad you enjoyed them. I think the 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 last two novels in that series, uh, Rabbit uh, Rabbit is Rich and Rabbit at Rest, are uh, every bit as good as the first one. I, I've said on the podcast before that that you just kind of have to power through the second one. Although interesting, in that new Adam Begley biography of Updike, um, he really makes a case for Rabbit Redux. Uh, he's hmm. wrong. But he makes a case for it. And, you know, it's, it's always interesting to see people make uh, unpopular stands. I even, he says, read the Rabbit Remembered novella, which was a nice code of the kind of new millennium story that could only have been written the year before 9-11. Hmm. One more thing. Since you did an Elijah episode, how about one on Elisha? He has a lot of interesting stories. 
Yeah, we might do that. We have talked about the the bear, right? I, I feel <laughs> like I feel like that's a conversation we've had before. I, I yeah, I think you mentioned that on the Elijah episode. Okay. Mm. The the bear, the Elisha and the bear in the Cub Scout trip is uh, is the most horrifying story in the entire, <laughs> which is really saying something because it's full of horrifying, horrifying stories. Hilarious. <laughs> Depends on your perspective. And also, Joel, I just want to chime in and say I've not read the Rabbit novels, but I've read a number of Updike's other pieces, and I agree that I mean his sex scenes are disturbing in a way that even other literary sex scenes are not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I, not, I'm not going to defend them. That's for sure. Yeah. Well, no, no, no. I'm not saying they're bad, but I am saying oh, that. Oh no, I mean, they're bad. I, I mean, I, I'm always aware that I just read a sex scene when I read it in Updike. <laughs> Rabbit, <laughs> Rabbit Redux has the grossest one, I think. Um, and I think people who who have read it will know which one I'm talking about. There's multiple gross ones. But it, oh, man. <laughs> the worst part is the grossest part of it recurs in a month of Sundays. So all I can figure is it must have been something that actually happened to the man. But uh, I don't want to think about it beyond that. Hmm. Updike, not for children, as it turns out. No. <laughs> any any connection between the weird sex and Updike and your propensity for seeing sharks is remember, resembling both male and female genitalia? Uh, <laughs> Oh, man. You know, there you go. <laughs> All right. Very nice. Oh. So, switching gears very quickly. Uh, Todd Pedler writes in and says, Hi, guys. Thanks for introducing me to a new artist who seems to strike a number of chords with me. Uh, before this episode, I had never heard of Mark Hurd. <laughs> but given what you presented of his life and music, I am thankful for the introduction. I am an Ecclesiastes kind of guy, and Hurd seems to be a musician with whose work I might find significant resonance i have a lot of respect for those with whom he was connected phil keggy uh vigilantes of love for two and i'm looking forward to digging into his discography i'm about as far from being a fan of ccm as i could possibly be i've never liked very much of it as most of it today as well as in my youth is nearly entirely devoid of depth uh in other words it's in the play stupider vein that we discussed in that episode uh, or consists of meaningless repetitions of simple praise sentences, never straying from the thematic material of Psalm 150, as Nathan pointed out. <laughs> I find very little in the realm of CCM that seems worth listening to or uh, singing. As far as I can tell, the CCM music producers of today are just about as sold out to the principles of Hurd's play stupider antagonist as they were in his day. After my next comment, perhaps you'll regret inviting a physicist to join the Christian Humanist Empire but here's an alternative take on the candle and prism stanza of Hurd's wonderful love is not the only thing. I think Michael got the gist of what Hurd was saying correct. But if I remember what he said about the prism in some sense containing the rainbow, it was off base in terms of the physics. Um, you know what, guys? I think we ought to post these next couple paragraphs on the blog as well in the show notes because uh, our listeners deserve to read it, not just to hear it. <laughs> So, listeners, go to the blog post. I think you'll enjoy Todd's explanation of why Michael doesn't understand prisms. Uh, and, and you know, I have no defense. I don't understand prisms. <laughs> I, I also, I think I said it backwards when we did the show, and I knew as soon as I said it that I said it backwards, but I didn't want to go back and correct it. Figuring, I gotcha. Figuring that some, uh, some science-minded listener would do it for me. Hey. Well, anyway, Todd wraps up saying, thanks for bringing Herd to light. I'm all bad puns today. Looking forward to your next episode and, of course, to the Book of Nature getting going in September. And listeners, 
I'll just stop right now and give our uh, commercial break and say that, you know, look not only for the Book of Nature, which is our science and mathematics podcast that, like Todd said, should be rolling sometime in September, but also for Danny Anderson's Sectarian Review, which will be a cultural criticism podcast. Both of those will be coming to you on the Christian Humanist radio network. But not on our feed. I, I think we'll probably put one episode each on, on this feed so that you will get it automatically and we'll know how much you'll like it. Um, right. After that, they'll, you, they'll be there on their own feeds. Yes, and you should subscribe to both of them. All right. David has an email from Paul Tennyson. Yeah, and this is – is this our last one? It is. Dear Christian Humanist, there's only one of us. I would like to preface <laughs> this by saying that I truly enjoyed episode 126.1, Postmodernism, as I enjoyed the majority of your podcast. I would like to take this opportunity to correct an assertion by Michael Farmer in the Postmodernism episode. You just can't win today, Michael. I, I, I say a lot of crazy crap on the podcast. <laughs> Apparently so. It's, it's just me paying the piper. All right, so you said, and he quotes, war changes, but at the same time, it doesn't change. As someone who has fairly extensively studied military history as a West Point graduate and an active U.S. Army officer, oh, I would like to argue that Michael's assertions do not stand up. Uh, Michael's assertion does not stand up to the reality of military history. Therefore, I will offer a brief summary of how war changes and does not stay the same based on my understanding of military history in an attempt to educate Michael in a part of history he appears to have a little understanding of. I, I'm not sure there's a reason to read the uh, the entire summary. It is it is many paragraphs long. It, it boils down to the idea that technology changed the nature of warfare in ways that were profound, far-reaching, etc. Yeah. Well, and... and... Um, he he clearly knows more military history than I I do, and I would never mm -hmm. I would never say otherwise. Yeah. Well, he he starts off by talking about Agincourt and the role of the, the role of the longbow and changing <laughs> the the entire face of medieval uh, warfare, which he's right on that Agincourt. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that was that was important. Yeah, um, he, he then, starts with Agincourt and goes all the way to the current war in uh, Iraq and Afghanistan. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the, the, this 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 is are, are we going to repost this? Yeah, too? I'll post that too. Since since yeah. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it, I mean, it's it, it, very very thorough. And of course, he's right. I mean, I'm a technological determinist in a lot of ways. I think that that the, the technology we use is we we uses very nice. I'm apparently not a grammatical determinist. The technology <laughs> the technology we the technology we use changes in some ways human nature, right? So I, mm -hmm. I, I certainly did not mean to suggest that war doesn't change in the sense that it's the same across time. What, what I'm saying is, I, I think what I was saying, I haven't gone back and listened to that episode, but I think what I was saying is that um, the psychological effects of going to war and killing people are always there, even before the longbow, right? So killing people is always always hard on on people even even before you could drop a bomb and kill a hundred thousand of them mm -hmm. at the same time it does change in the sense that technology makes those effect it makes those effects much easier to get and thus in, in its way more horrific even if it in, in other ways it's less horrific because you don't have to look into people's eyes I think yeah. that's what I was saying, but really I was just speaking off the cuff as someone who has no training in military history or political science. Uh, 
Um, um, so I, I appreciate the, the correction from Paul. Yes, he, he repents in dust and ashes, Paul. Um, and I, but I actually, have... I actually emailed him back personally to, to, to thank him for this because it was, it was so thorough and, and, uh, interesting. In fact, I, I mean, I, I learned a lot from that. So we'll, we'll post that to the show notes as well. Right. He does have a postscript. I am a huge fan of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. I love how that's catching on. As I've listened to at least 40 Christian Humanist podcasts, a few of the Christian Humanist profiles, and the majority of the Christian Feminist podcasts, I will end this email by saying that you've all influenced me in many positive ways, and I hope that you are willing and able to keep up the good work you've done so far. So thank you for that, Paul. You know, he, yep, told, we... he told me when he emailed me back that, uh, that he got into us because his wife listens to The Feminist Show. Huh. Cool. Wives, tell your husbands. Husbands, <laughs> tell your wives. <laughs> awesome. So thank well, you. Thank you all for the corrections and the uh, compliments and the suggestions. And I am not a semi-Pelagian. <laughs> <laughs> Three quarters. <laughs> oh, well, now, now, now let, let, let's, let, let's be, well not fair, but honest and just say that, you know, if you're a Presbyterian, everything that isn't Presbyterian is semi-Pelagian. <laughs> fair it, enough. That, that is, that is kind of the reformed attitude. <laughs> That's true. Because Luth, Luther is semi-Pelagian. Well, you know, that slippery slope, man, it's slippery. <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> How else do you ski that without the slippery slope, you know? Oh, I, well, if you would like us to read your email in a special episode like this, you can send uh, send your emails to thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. Um, I don't know when we'll do the next of these. My guess is what will happen is we'll do one of these anytime we reach a critical mass of emails rather than <laughs> rather than doing it on a time scale. So if, if we get 35 emails tomorrow, maybe we'll have another one next week. I don't know. Um, <laughs> in the meantime, yeah. we'll be back uh, I, we haven't talked about it, but I assume in the next few weeks with our first episode of the fall season. Mm-hmm. Awesome. David Grubbs will be hosting that. David, do you know what we're talking about yet? I haven't got the foggiest of notions. Right, well, we'll be talking about something. We will, as always. Well, watch the Facebook page. I'm sure we'll announce if there's any kind of reading to be done beforehand. <laughs> we'll do. Sounds good. In the meantime, you can read the show notes and the, the parts of the emails we didn't read uh, will be up at christianhumanist.org. Until next time, this is Michael Farmer for Nathan Gilmore and David Grubb saying, let your sins be strong, but let your faith be stronger. You always right to ask How come I don't write back But I tell you But then I That would start I finally found it In 